0: This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Well, hello there, this is Jeremy Myers, and welcome to another recording of my One Verse Podcast, where we continue to talk about the subject of hell. The subject that lots of people wonder about. What does the Bible teach about hell? What's the truth about hell? Am I headed for hell? Are my friends and relatives in hell? And the Bible gives us answers to many of these questions, but they are typically not the answers that most people are familiar with. And that is what I want to show you in today's podcast episode and in the future podcast episodes going forward. Right now we're in a series where we're looking at the eight key terms about hell. And then after that, we're going to look at several key passages about hell. This is the one-verse podcast after all, and we are going to be looking at one primary verse today out of 2 Peter. It talks about the word Tartarus. And, um, and then in the future, though, we will be focusing in, zeroing in on some specific passages as well. Now, in case you aren't aware, these podcast episodes do come from my forthcoming book, What is Hell? And it is available on Amazon for pre-order right now for only $2.99 you can pre-order the book and get all of the content all in one neat and tidy place in a book when it comes out in early June right now the paperback version is not available for pre-order Amazon won't let me do that uh, but the Kindle version is available if you prefer to have it that way Okay? So, oh, and also, there is going to be a course that goes along with the book. If that is interested, uh, interesting to you, just go to my site, redeeminggod.com, click on the courses link up top, and the course is titled, What is Hell? goes along with the book. And this is audio version and there's interaction where you can ask questions and comments with other students. Now, the course is normally $297. Don't pay that. Okay? Join the discipleship group. Only $9 a month. And you can get that course and all of my other courses for free. It's thousands of dollars of worth of courses at no extra charge, including the, the course on health. Okay? So, uh, that there is available for you as well. Now... With that in mind, let us turn to our study of the words Abyss and Tartarus today. In previous podcast episodes, we've looked at the words Sheol, saw that it just means grave, a pit in the ground, a hole, hole that uh, in which people are buried. And we've looked at the word Gehenna to see that it is just this garbage dump, this pit, Uh, Garbage pit outside the gates of Jerusalem. It's a literal place then and now. You could even visit this valley of Gehenna today. And we have looked at the phrase outer darkness and saw that it does not refer to hell either. None of those three terms refer to hell. There's three terms left that we want to look at. Well, four, I guess. Uh, One is, well, we're going to look at two of them today, abyss and Tartarus. And then next week, we're going to study the word Hades, And then after that, we're going to look at the the term lake of fire to see what that is all about. Following that, we will be studying some of the passages that refer to hell. So what about abyss and Tartarus? What do they refer to? Uh, The word abyss is the Greek word abyssos, and it's often translated as abyss or pit in Scripture. And the word means bottomless. Bottomless pit sometimes is how you might sometimes find it translated in the Bible. And it basically means a hole or a pit of immeasurable depth. Now, one of the things that helps us understand what the word abyss means is the LXX or the Septuagint version of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, You might know this, but the Hebrew Old Testament obviously was written in Hebrew. And then it was translated around 70 B.C. or so into Greek, and this is the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, okay? And uh, so, so it's Greek, and so sometimes we can see how the Hebrew words are translated into Greek and then use that to help us understand how people in the days of Jesus and the early church might have understood Some of these old Hebrew words, okay? So anyway, when we look at the LXX, the Septuagint, most often the Hebrew word "to home" is translated as the deep. And if you've been listening to my podcast for any length of time, you might recall that when I did my podcast studies on Genesis 2, uh, way back, this was a couple years, years ago, I guess, on Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, we did see... Uh, the, I'm sorry, Genesis 1, verse 2, where the word tahom is used in the Hebrew, we did see that the, uh, what, what the tahom was. And I said there, I'm quoting from my study from that time, that the tahom was an ancient, mysterious, and menacing word. All right? It, uh, to ancient minds, it was an evil word. It carries the idea of powerful forces of chaos arrayed against the order of God's creation. So, when it comes to thinking about the experience, about the relationship between hell and the abyss, we see that since the abyss refers to the deepest part of the sea on this world, that's what the abyss means, okay? It's not some afterlife pit in which souls of the unredeemed people are flung. It refers to the deepest part of the sea on this earth, And it's a wet place, obviously, since it's in the sea. And so therefore, those definitions of the word abyss or to home uh, can't refer to a place of burning agony and suffering in a fiery pit for all eternity, because it's a wet place and a deep place and a dark place on this earth, the deepest part of the ocean. All right, It is not the afterlife experience where people suffer and burn for eternity. Now, to home also carries some imagery of chaos, the powers of chaos arrayed against God and the order of creation, Uh, but again, it is not a place where people go to suffer in flames for all eternity. The idea of burning in flames and the idea of a watery grave, watery uh, abyss, all right, the the two ideas are self-contradictory, okay? You cannot have burning flames and deep water in the same place, all right, so you you, you can't say that uh, the word abyss refers to a place of burning, suffering, agony. Okay. Now, the symbolic nature of the abyss also comes back in the Book of Revelation, where the word abyss is used most frequently in the New Testament, and it talks about the abyss when the beast comes out of the sea. That's in Revelation eleven, thirteen, and seventeen. And this symbolizes that the beast brings chaos. Remember, the idea of tahom is this idea of forces of chaos or the powers of chaos against the order of God's creation. And so when the book of Revelation talks about the abyss and the beast, it's bringing up all of this same exact imagery about the forces of chaos being arrayed against God. All right, And uh, in fact, in the book of Revelation, when the abyss is opened— Chaos, which comes out in the form of fire and smoke, it comes out of this pit, this deep hole. It's sort of um, picturesque of a volcano rising up out of the sea, right? And that's the idea that Revelation 9 has, verses 1 and 2. Now, at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, uh, then that God sends the beast back into an abyss from whence he came— it sort of reminds us when Jesus sends this demonic horde back into the depths of the sea in Luke chapter 8. Anyway, the point of all this is just to say that just like with the word Sheol, all right, the word abyss does not represent hell. It is literally referring to the deep waters of the ocean. And when it's used in a symbolic sense, it's just talking about the powers of chaos that are arrayed in this life against the order, the good and orderly way that God made this world to function. And so when people go down into the abyss, it's just saying that they sink into the ocean, to the depths of the ocean. Or, more symbolically, they are experiencing the forces of chaos in their life, which might be represented by, or might be experienced by depression or problems in their life, or the feeling that their life is falling apart, or something like that, okay? It's not an experience, not a description of an afterlife experience, but a description of the way some people experience this life, and how some people, how their lives are literally, physically, lost into the depths of the ocean. The bottom line is, by the way, we did talk about this a little bit, when also in the podcast studies of Jonah 2.6, when we looked at those. So again, you can go back, get, get that podcast episode on Jonah 2:6 and learn a little bit more about that as well. bottom line is no reference in the Bible to the abyss ever contains descriptions of fire, suffering, or the torture of people for all eternity. So therefore, just like every other word we've looked at so far, the word abyss does not and cannot refer to a place of everlasting suffering and torment in the fires of hell. Okay? The word Sheol doesn't carry that idea. The word Gehenna doesn't carry that idea. The word uh, the, the concept of the outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, does not carry that idea. And now the word abyss also does not carry that idea. Okay? What about Tartarus, though? What about Tartarus? Okay. Um, the word Tartarus is only used once in the Bible, and it's in, it's found in 2 Peter 2.4. It's there in the verb form, Tartarao, and uh, Peter is describing, in 2 Peter 2.4, God's action of casting the angels who sinned—now, the English translations often say, down into hell, where they are in chains of darkness awaiting judgment Okay, So that word hell, depending on your English translation, is this word Tartarus. But is hell a good translation of this word? Well, to see what Peter is referring to, again, this is the only time. We can't go to any Hebrew passage or any other parallel passage in the Bible to try to understand what the word Tartarus means. So what we need to do in this case is go outside of Scripture and find other places in Greek literature from that same time period that tell us what Tartarus is referring to, all right? And Tartarus, if if you're familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, Tartarus was a very common word, or relatively common, in Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, the word Tartarus referred to two things. First, it is the name of one of, uh, in Greek mythology, one of the original primordial deities, okay? An ancient god, uh, before—one of the gods that existed, the, the Greek mythological gods that existed before the Greek uh, pantheon that we are most familiar with in, in some of our modern uh, movies and books and so on, okay? It's a primordial deity. Anyway, um, that's the first place. The, the, the second way the word Tartarus is used in Greek mythology is of a place— And um, in this way, the word Tartarus is a little bit like Hades. Hades also is a place and a god in Greek mythology. We'll be talking about Hades next week. Um, But as a place, Tartarus was, in Greek mythology, thought to be a dungeon—are you ready?—of suffering and torment. It does include the concepts of suffering and torment, but not of humans, instead of the ancient Greek mythological titans. All right? The Titans—I wish I could give you a summary of Greek mythology here. So there was these primordial deities, and um, the second generation, they had these, these creations, sort of children of sorts, who were the Titans. They were the second generation. And uh, these Titans ruled during the legendary Golden Age of humanity. And they were eventually—the Titans were eventually defeated— by the third generation of deities of gods and these were the olympians okay and the olympian deities are the ones we usually think of when we think of the greek and roman Deities, you know Zeus, Hades, Poseidon, those sort of those sort of uh, deities, the ones the ones we read about in books and see in movies and, and so on. Okay. Anyway, so the Titans were the second generation, and they were defeated by the third generation of deities. Now, when the Olympian deities, the third generation, defeated the second generation, the Titans, the Olympians sent the Titans to Tartarus. Okay, to suffer for their sins, (laughs) suffer for their rebellion, suffer for trying to defeat the Olympians. Humans didn't go to Tartarus, typically. Humans went to Hades. Okay, now, later Greek mythology does sometimes say that the worst of the worst humans were sent to Tartarus. Uh, Sisyphus, remember King Sisyphus? He was sent to Tartarus for violating the rules of hospitality. Uh, King Tantalus was sent to Tartarus for for cannibalism. He killed and ate his own son. Okay, So the worst human beings uh, were, were sometimes sent to Tartarus to suffer there. But uh, most humans did not go to Tartarus. That was reserved for the Titans primarily. Most humans instead went to Hades. Good and the bad. All right. So by referencing Tartarus, that's just a quick summary of Greek mythology regarding Tartarus. Now, Paul refers or I'm sorry Peter refers to Tartarus here in second Peter. Does that mean that Peter is endorsing Greek mythology in Second Peter when he talks about us? I don't think so, okay? Peter is definitely alluding to the myth and he recognizes that it is a myth. okay, but that doesn't mean he's saying and eh, this is true. He's not saying, and this is what really happened. He's not saying, and by the way, when you're done reading my letter, I want you to go read these Greek myths because that is that is that is how it really happened. No, Peter knows that this is myth. All right. He's referring to a myth to make a point without endorsing the myth itself. All right. I have often in some of my sermons made a joke about when you die, you're going to stand before Peter at the pearly gates, right? Do I believe that's really going to happen? I don't, but it illustrates a point. Often in my sermons, I have used an illustration about a movie that I have watched. Maybe The Matrix, or something from Lord of the Rings, or some other movie okay, that might make a point. You might even show a clip of it in a sermon. Uh, Sometimes even without referring to a movie, we can refer to ancient Greek mythology ourselves or or Greek stories, Achilles' heel or Cupid's arrows or something like that, okay? Now, by using those illustrations, am I saying, and I really believe those things happened, those things really are true? No, I'm using them as illustrations. Most pastors and Bible teachers uh, do this as well, okay? I think that's what Peter is doing. We could even go beyond this. I mean, we talk about the days of the week Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Okay. And these are the days of the week we use to refer to our calendar. We talk about the days of the months of the year January, February, March. Did you know that the days of the week and the months of the year are all based on the names of Greek and Roman gods? Monday is the moon's day, Sunday is the sun's day. Okay. Uh, Tuesday is Tears Day, T-Y-R. Wednesday is Odin's Day, so on. Okay, January is Janus's month. Okay, and we can go this way, okay, through the year, through the week. And now, when you talk about Wednesday or Thursday, which is Thor's Day, I'm recording this on Thursday. Today is Thor's Day. Do I then mean, when I say Thursday, That I worship Thor and that I think Thor is a real god and that you know he's really a deity. No, okay. My point is we can use the names and stories and images of Greek and Roman mythology without endorsing or stating our belief in those views and those myths. Okay? Peter is doing the exact same thing with Tartarus. Okay? Now If that's true, then we need to understand what Peter is saying by referring to this Greek myth of Tartarus. And I think especially this idea about the angels being bound in chains of darkness. So what is he referring his readers to with this illustration? And I do think that probably Peter has a biblical historical event in mind, and there's two possible options for this. The first is when the angelic hosts rebelled against God and uh, fell, for lack of a better term, okay? And this would be when Satan and, you know, a third of the angels rebelled against God and... um, You know, fell into their rebellion in sorts. Now, the question is, when did this happen? I don't know. Some people believe it happened before God ever set out to create the heavens and the earth. So it would be before Genesis 1 1. Some people believe it happened uh, between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2. It's called the gap theory. People believe that the rebellion happened right in there, and there's a gap of maybe thousands or maybe millions or billions of years in between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2. Some people think it happened. Uh, On after the final day of creation, after Genesis 2-3, because God saw all that he was made and it was very good. Well, if there's fallen angels and rebellion going on in the universe, then how can all be very good? So some people say, no, the rebellion happened after all was made somehow. Anyway, I don't know when it happened, and frankly, I don't really care. But regardless of when the angels rebelled against God, some think that Peter's referring to that event. And so God would have taken those angels and bound them with chains of darkness, and Peter calls it Tartarus. Maybe it was Tartarus, maybe it wasn't. Who knows? They're bound in this place to await judgment. And so some people think that that event is what Peter is referring to here in 2 Peter uh, 2.4. Okay? Now, uh, the other option is... This event in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where these sons of God come down and have relations with the daughters of men, and the result are these Nephilim. It's a very mysterious event in the Bible. I personally have trouble making heads or tails of what's happening there, who these Nephilim were, and so on. Um, But uh, some people say that that is the event that Peter is referring to here in 2 Peter. And support for that view is found in 1 Peter 3, 19-20, where Peter indicates that Jesus went and preached, after Jesus died, Jesus went and preached to the spirits who were in prison who sinned in the days of Noah. And so since Peter used that illustration in his previous letter, in 1 Peter, some people think, that he's referring to the same thing in his second letter here in 2 Peter 2. And uh, Jude 6 also supports this concept about uh, angels who did not keep their proper abode, being bound by God with chains of everlasting darkness, okay, until the day of judgment. So very, very similar terminology there by Jude. And so if that's the case, then, then Peter's referring to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, then basically God would have taken these sons of God, these angelic beings who sinned in such a horrible way in Genesis 6, and taken them and bound them in chains of darkness, so waiting judgment, so they could not sin in such a way again as they did back in Genesis 6. And that's why we have not seen a recurrence, a repeat of whatever it is they were doing there in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Okay, so those are the two possible ways uh, of understanding what Peter might be talking about in 2 Peter. The thing is is both views have one significant problem. <laughs> in either way, okay, God took these fallen angels and chained them, either the ones who fell, you know, sometime before or after creation, or these ones who sinned in Genesis 6. If they're chained in darkness, if they're chained waiting judgment, then here's the problem. How is it that Jesus encountered, seems to encountered, these fallen beings, these fallen angels during his earthly ministry? If they're chained, then how does Jesus encounter them? Furthermore, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8 that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Again, if Satan is one of those angels who rebelled, then that would mean that Satan is one of the ones that God chained, but then how can Satan be prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Okay? And furthermore, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, if all the demons and evil spirits are already bound, then why are we instructed by Paul to stand against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places? Right? The bottom line is this if the spirits are bound, if the fallen angels are bound, (laughs) then why are there all this instruction in the New Testament and by Jesus and even in the ministry of Jesus to watch out for them and protect ourselves against them and stand against them? And why did Jesus stand against them? So, okay, I reject that whole thing. I feel like it's speculative and it just gets really into the sort of weird stuff that some Christians love to spend their time on. I try to avoid a lot of that, try to get real practical. I believe that 2 Peter 2.4 is symbolic. Okay, Just Don't try to necessarily connect it with some event in biblical history. I think that um, nearly all the imagery in 2 Peter 2.4 is symbolic for something other than a literal chaining of angels with chains of darkness. I mean, what are chains of darkness anyway? In a place, a mythological place called Tartarus. Okay, I think it's symbolic. And and support for my view on Second Peter two four comes from yes, an outside source of the Bible. But there's no other way to talk about Tartarus, and the source is the wisdom of Solomon seventeen seventeen. Okay, this is an Old Testament. Um, it's called the. Apocryphal or pseudepigraphal book. I can't remember which, which volume it's in. It's not in the Bible, Wisdom of Solomon. And it describes the ninth plague of darkness that came upon Egypt in Exodus 10 as chains of darkness. Okay? Uh, the, the entire chapter of the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 17, seems to be referenced by Peter. Okay? Uh, uh, Wisdom of Solomon 17 speaks of captives of darkness. Prisoners of a long night who engage in secret sins and suffer from self-kindled fire. Uh, the chapter says the darkness came upon them from Hades, and so they were kept in a prison not made of iron, okay? And all of that imagery is used to describe the ninth plague of darkness that came upon Egypt. You go and read the account, there's no literal chains there. Prisons are not involved at all. The imagery in Wisdom of Solomon 17 and what actually happened in the ninth plague is that there were oppressive darkness. There was this oppressive darkness that came upon the people of Egypt, and they were fearful, and it caused them to be immobilized. They were so scared they couldn't move, as if they were bound with chains. The darkness was so oppressive, it was as if chains of darkness were wrapped around them. All right? And that is what I think 2nd Peter or Peter is referring to when he writes about this. All right, look, fallen angels have always been active since they rebelled against God, and it doesn't look like most of them, if any of them, have literally been bound with chains in some Greek mythological place called Tartarus. So therefore, I think that Peter's words must be understood symbolically as referring to the fear of God that fallen angels feel as they await the judgment of God that is to come upon them, okay? The fear of God, the fear of their future judgment, immobilizes them to some degree, not completely, okay? But to some degree, the fear of future judgment of God is like the chains of darkness that came upon the people of Egypt in the ninth plague, and it immobilizes them, not completely, but to some degree. All right, so the rebellious angels are immobilized by the fear, the chains of darkness that judgment is going to come upon them from God. Okay, so that's my view. And that's what I think Peter is talking about in 2 Peter 2 4. Now, how does all this refer to hell? (laughs) Guess what? It doesn't. It's referring to fallen angels being afraid of the impending judgment of God. Notice that, okay, you know, let's back off. Even if you say, Jeremy, you're wrong, I don't accept this, this is referring to fallen angels being bound with chains of darkness in this place called Tartarus, and okay, it comes from Greek mythology, but I think that such a place must exist because Peter talks about it. Whatever your view is, okay? Notice that Peter nowhere says anything whatsoever about humans being in Tartarus, okay? I don't know what your view of Tartarus is, and frankly, I don't care. <laughs> humans are not there. It's only these fallen angels. So whatever your view on Tartarus, it too, we must admit, has nothing whatsoever to do with humans, non-believing humans, spending eternity suffering and screaming flames of darkness all right, for all time. Whether Tartarus is this literal spiritual prison for fallen angels, or my view, a symbolic way of referring to the fear of God that comes upon fallen angels and the judgment of God that is going to come upon them, it's not describing a hellish place of suffering and torment for human beings. Human beings are not in view in Second Peter two four. Human beings are not in Tartarus, whatever it might be. Okay, so here again with this another term, we have a. We, we have another term that does not refer to God sending human beings to a place of everlasting torment and suffering in a fiery hole, right? There is no passage in Scripture which says that humans will be sent to Tartarus, whatever Tartarus might be. You're probably seeing the theme, aren't you? We've talked about Sheol. We've talked about the abyss. We've talked about Gehenna. We've talked about Tartarus. We've talked about the outer darkness, Five terms so far. Or is that six? I don't know. (laughs) None of them refer to hell as a place of suffering and burning and screaming and agony for all eternity. I think you can probably predict what we're going to see when we turn to Hades next week and, surprisingly, the Lake of Fire after that. Okay, so Make sure you stick around for those studies as well because they will be just as enlightening. And then we will turn to some biblical texts, because I know that is where your questions are concerned with. Now look, if you enjoy these studies about hell, you will also enjoy the book, What Is Hell? and the online course that goes with it with the same title, What Is Hell? You can pre-order the book on Amazon, just titled What Is Hell? Or you can also sign up to take the course right away, Uh, right now except there's no content there yet you can you can sign up to take the course and uh, but then the content will be coming out in june as well however while you're waiting for that you can take some of the other uh, eight or nine courses that are already available for you to take on my site at redeeminggod.com okay so hey thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast please think about leaving a rating and review on itunes there's 44 almost five-star reviews on iTunes already. And also, telling other people about this podcast, inviting them to subscribe to it and listen to it is helpful for me as well. Thank you so very much for listening, and we'll see you next week when we talk about the word Hades. (laughs) Is that hell? I think you can already know the answer, but we'll see you then. Bye.